0: Good morning everyone, I, so good to see you uh, and thank you so much Chun for leading us in service and Adrian and the music team for leading us in the songs. It's been a while I checked uh, my past record so it seems like it's been over a year since I've been here in ARPC at Vishan so it's probably the first time uh, some of you have seen me in a while as well. So let me just open by uh, asking you to keep firstly keep your Bibles open Keep right. your Bibles open. Your hearts open to God's word, and we are looking at Luke chapter nineteen verse forty-five to twenty twenty-one verse four. So it's a pretty long uh, passage of God's word. We'll see how far we can go, get along uh, in this. Okay. There's also an online e-bulletin where there's an outline. So if you might you want to download it, that might help you to follow the sermon a bit better as well. Okay. Let me open by asking uh, us, what do you think about authority? What do you think about authority? And in particular, those who exercise authority over us. Here in Singapore, you could say that we are mostly compliant, right? Right? So we are compliant to authority and we are afraid of breaking the law. And that is why all of us here are wearing masks, right? We're all keeping to eight people in a group. And we are doing safe entry everywhere we went. We are compliant as Singaporeans. Well, the Australian attitude towards authority on the other hand, it has been called larrikinism larrikinism and that is a proud national disregard towards authority and some people just, just take it to the extreme, right? So, meet Prince Leonard Kesley, Prince Leonard Kesley of the Principality of Hutt River which is the oldest micro-nation within Australia I quote this CNN article from last August. Hutt River's origin as a micronation dates back to 1970 when the late Prince Leonard Casey claimed that he had exploited a legal loophole to create the principality in an isolated part of Western Australia, 500 kilometres north of Perth. It is more than twice the size of Macau, but populated by less than Thirty people. The principality, though not officially recognised by the Australian government, acted like an independent nation. Its government, which is governed by Prince Casley, it grants visas and driver's licences, issues passports and currency, produces its own stamps and flies its own flag. Huts River is but one of many, many micro nations within Australia, which has asserted sovereignty and rebelled against authority. But who says that all Singaporeans are compliant to authority? Remember, right after Circuit Breaker last April, there was this woman, right, who uh, in nearby Shunfu Mart, she refused to wear a mask. Calling herself a sovereign, she says this, she claims. It means I have nothing to do with the police. It means I have no contract with the police. They have no say over me. See, she didn't recognize any authority but herself. And perhaps there was uh, she had some mental illness. But someone was arguing with her and this man reasoned, This doesn't even make any sense. If you are a person in Singapore, you, you have to follow the rules of Singapore. So to borrow the title of Jack News' 2007 movie, Just Follow Law is our national motto, right? Now, how do you yourself deal with authority? Do you comply or do you rebel? And with God's authority in particular, how do you respond to God? And what will God do about illegitimate authorities who rebel against His authority? Today we will see how the Lord Jesus deals with worldly authorities that rebel against God's authority, here in Luke 19, verse 45 to 21, verse 4. And there are three confrontations that King Jesus will be having over worldly authorities. Firstly the religious, and then the political, and finally hypocritical authority. These confrontations are happening in Jerusalem where the Jewish temple was, and the sons of David used to reign. Jesus had started his earthly ministry in the region of Galilee. And then in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The days drew near for him to be taken up. Jesus knew that he had to go to Jerusalem to face confrontation with the authorities there, to die and to rise again, in order that he might be taken up to the Father. So, from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, to chapter 19, verse 44, just before this passage, the Lord Jesus had been journeying from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem and teaching and doing signs along the way. And now he draws near to Jerusalem. And as he drew near, Jesus wept over Jerusalem in chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And why does Jesus weep? Well, he says, they, that is the Romans, will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you do not know the time of your visitation. See, Jesus, the King, is visiting Jerusalem but God's people are going to confront him and reject him. And so, very soon, God will judge them for this rebellion. The Romans will soon destroy Jerusalem and his temple in around AD 70. And so, Jesus wept over this disobedient city. In chapter 19, verse 45, Jesus finally enters Jerusalem after a very long journey. Now, if you were to come to Singapore as a tourist, where would be the first place that you would go to? Perhaps the Jewel, right? Since it is in the airport. And then your next stop may be Gardens by the Bay or Resorts World Sentosa. Well, the first place Jesus goes to in Jerusalem is not for sightseeing. It is the temple because Jesus was not a tourist. He was a man on mission from God. The temple was the focal point of all life in Jerusalem, and it is where his first confrontation must take place. This first confrontation is over the issue of religious authority. So in the words of the religious leaders to Jesus in chapter 20, verse 2, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that give you this authority. What were these things that Jesus was doing? Well, in chapter 19, verse 45, we see once Jesus entered Jerusalem, the first thing that he did there was he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, the Lord Jesus, King Jesus, expels the traders who were providing services for worshippers by first changing the Roman coins into acceptable temple currency, and secondly, by selling the sacrificial animals that they would need. But this trade was likely taking place in the so-called court of the Gentiles. It It can be carried on outside the temple compound, but instead they were setting up store in the temple compound. So to make it clear, Jesus wasn't saying that we can't sell packet meals to encourage fellowship like we used to before COVID hit. He is saying, however, that we shouldn't take up space or hinder people from the worship of God. And so Jesus condemns them for turning God's house, which was to be a house of prayer, according to Isaiah 56, verse 7, into a den of robbers as in Jeremiah seven eleven, Jesus saw the religious hustle and bustle in the temple as but a cover-up, a cover-up of the true spiritual state of its leaders who were devoid of God and of love for His people. In verse 47, we see the second thing that Jesus was doing. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests And the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they didn't find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. See, Jesus' teaching in the temple was winning converts, fervent converts from amongst the people, but also fierce enemies among the religious leaders. The group here, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the gospel, they made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and they had decided to kill Jesus. So in chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes of the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority the religious leaders were challenging Jesus' authority to drive up the traders as well as to teach in the temple. So today they might be asking him to prove which theological seminary did you graduate from? Which denomination ordained you as pastor? Who gave you the rights to do these things? Show us your credentials. Jesus responds with a very clever counter-question in verse 3. I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This question puts the religious leaders in an impossible situation, a moral dilemma. See, And they discussed with themselves, saying, if we say, from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Their internal discussion exposes the sheer hypocrisy of these religious leaders. In truth, they didn't believe at all that John the Baptist or the Lord Jesus were from God, but they they did not say so because they feared the people. And this would be me if you were to ask me before the GE which party I'm voting for. And even today, I'm still not telling. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then Jesus began to teach them, to tell them the parable of the vineyard, which echoes Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And each character in this parable represents someone in Jesus' encounter here. First, in verse 9, we have the man who planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. This owner of the vineyard is God himself, and the tenants are clearly the religious leaders. The vineyard represents Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, whom the religious leaders were to look after as God's stewards. And by the time Jesus finished the parable in verse 19, we find the leaders trying to kill him because they perceived that he had told this parable against them. The three servants who were sent to to, to collect some of the fruits of the vineyard and they were mistreated by the tenants, they stood for God's servants, the prophets, who were often mistreated by Israel's leaders. And the beloved son here, would then be the Lord Jesus who was, sent first, uh, who was sent last of all by God. Jesus predicts that the leaders will throw him out and kill him, and then God will come to judge and destroy them, giving the vineyard to others, whether these are Gentiles or the remnants of Israel or both. In this confrontation over religious authority, God will ultimately triumph but it is at the costly price of his beloved son who will be rejected and killed by the leaders. Next, in verse 19 to 26, we see Jesus' prediction of his rejection by the religious leaders. It was fulfilled immediately in verse 19. The the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. What we see here is an unholy conspiracy against the Son of God. They were saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance might be ours. But again, out of fear for the people who loved Jesus, who adored him, they dared not arrest Jesus or kill him themselves. Instead, these hypocritical leaders sent hypocritical spies who pretended to be sincere, so that they might catch him in something he said. They wanted to, in Mandarin we say, Right, to borrow the execution sword of the Roman governor in order to murder Jesus. The ancient proverb says, "The enemy of my friend oh sorry, the enemy of my enemy is my friend." Right? So these religious leaders pretend to hate the Romans like the people do, but on the other hand, they are more than willing to collaborate with them to get rid of Jesus their common enemy. Such hypocrisy and malice here. But how do they make Jesus into an enemy of the Romans as well? Well, that's the role of their spies who who tried to first butter Jesus up with words of insincere praise before they lay down a despicable trap for him. And the irony is that their words in verse 21 are actually totally true even if they didn't mean it. Teacher, we know that you you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. The Lord Jesus does speak rightly, justly, and truly. But then here comes the trap in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? See, they are like the pitcher plant, they were attempting to lure Jesus in with a sweet nectar that would also drown him if he got caught. See, if Jesus says here that it is lawful for Jews to pay tribute, he will be seen as a traitor and will lose the popular support. But if he says that it is not, then he will be regarded as an insurrectionist by the Romans. He will be arrested. And it all seems very clever, doesn't it? Either way, the religious leaders win. But the Lord was alert. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. A Roman denarius at that time would have the bust of the reigning emperor, in this case Tiberius Caesar, on one side, with the blasphemous inscription Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustine. Jesus first exposes their hypocrisy by asking for a denarius, and one was readily produced by these spies. Such hypocrites, if they truly oppose Caesar, why carry the denarius? that acknowledges his divine claim. Pointing to this likeness and inscription of Tiberius, Jesus says to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I think Bible commentator Leon Morris sums it up very well, and so I quote from him, Jesus' answer here left no room for an accusation of disloyalty to Caesar but also stress loyalty to God. Jesus is saying that we are citizens of heaven and earth at the same time. But as we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we must always bear in mind that Caesar's rights are limited. Caesar has no rights in God's domain. The Christian's first and overriding loyalty is always to God. Such authoritative words from the Lord Jesus, affirming the authority of God over political authority. So the result in verse 26 was this, they weren't able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And the religious leaders become silent very often in this passage. In this confrontation over political authority, God's king, shows us that our allegiance is owed always to God first, and then to the rulers is placed over us. Finally, in the third confrontation from verse 27, some Sadducees came to Jesus. Who are the Sadducees? In verse 27, we learn that they are those who deny that there is a resurrection. And Luke will later tell us more about them in Acts chapter 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. See, the Sadducees were a secular and aristocratic party that includes the priestly families, and they often collaborated with the Romans. They might have valued the Torah, or the five books of Moses, over and above the prophets and the writings. On many issues, they were at odds with the sect of the Pharisees, which most of the scribes came from. They knew that Jesus, in terms of his doctrine, was closer to the Pharisees rather than to them. And so they wanted to challenge him as well. They posed Jesus a question which is based on the hypothetical scenario. So it would be something like a trivia. right? Would you... Think of this. Would you rather have to say everything that comes to your mind or never say anything again? Would you rather have to say everything that comes to your mind or never say anything again? Trick question, right? Either way, you lose. So which will you choose? Or a common one among Christians may be this. If God sovereignly elects people to salvation, then why should we evangelize? Because this question already presupposes that God doesn't elect people to salvation. Now, citing the Leverite marriage law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, this Sadducees asked Jesus this, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, what's the point of their question if they didn't even believe in the resurrection, right? Well, such is their hypocrisy. They want to prove their superiority and Jesus' foolishness by exposing the absurdity behind this belief in the resurrection. But in verses 34 to 36, Jesus corrects their wrong eschatology, their doctrine of the last things. Jesus says that there are two ages and there are two humanities. All of us are now sons of this age. But by the saving grace of God and by the blood of His Son, some will be considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And these people are also called the sons of God and sons of the resurrection. Since they have been resurrected, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels. If there is no death, there is no need to marry and produce offspring. Brothers and sisters, this is the resurrection hope that we have in Christ. And Paul will describe this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Glorious and incorruptible bodies await us as the Lord returns to claim us. Jesus presses the lesson home in verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's in Exodus 3.15. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. In other words, Moses calls Yahweh the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, although these patriarchs have already died. And this must mean that death was not the end for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that they shall live again at the resurrection of the dead. That's such a clever reply by Jesus. He quotes from Exodus, which is part of the Torah, which the Sadducees treasure in order to correct their wrong theology. His convincing, his convincing argument silenced them, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. It also won Jesus' praise from the scribes, who are Pharisees and who believed in the resurrection. In verse 39, some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. For although they praised Jesus here, it was only because he had just trounced their opponents, the Sadducees. So Jesus continues to speak truly from God without showing partiality. In verse 45, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Here Jesus publicly denounced the scribes for their empty showiness and their false piety. They are but hypocrites who loved the world's applause. They pretend to be godly, but they did the most ungodly thing by devouring widows' houses. This means that they exploited the generosity of worshippers, sparing not even the most vulnerable in Jewish society or any society at all, and that is the widows and orphans. We get a visual display immediately. In chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, as Jesus was speaking in the temple, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Compared to the rich, this poor widow's offering was really negligible in the eyes of the keeper. Right? So do you know how much these two copper coins are? I found out that a copper coin is 1 over 128 of a denarius. Right? And denarius is the daily wage of a labourer. So I did some math, went to find out what's the average wage of a Singaporean worker. I right, did some calculation, and so I found that two copper coins is around three Singapore dollars today. Right, so I've got three coins here. So what this woman was doing, basically, was she put in these three one-dollar coins into the offering bag, whereas others were putting in maybe checks with a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. That's all she put in. But to the Lord Jesus, this poor widow has put in more than all of them combined because she was giving all of herself to God. The rich people, on the other hand, they contributed out of their great abundance. They weren't giving their whole self to God, they weren't giving themselves to God in worship, but they were keeping back much more for themselves. They were withholding from God. In the words of the song Simple Living, it is not what you give, but what you keep, that the king is counting. Not what you give, but what you keep. That is, that the king is counting. In this final confrontation over hypocritical authority, the Lord Jesus once again exposes the false religiosity and the genuine animosity of the religious leaders. He shows us what true piety looks like in the poor widow who gave everything to God. So what are some implications for us? You will see four in the e-bulletin, but I think today we just have time for two. So the first question for ourselves, do we recognize true authority? Jesus had warned earlier in verse 17, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The Lord Jesus is that stone of Psalm 118, verse 22. We either humbly receive Him as God's cornerstone, or we'll fall on Him and be crushed as we remain proud and assert our own authority. So this is important to ask ourselves and to sort out with God. Have you and I confessed our sin, our sin of rebelling against God, and of his King, of resisting the warnings through his many prophets, and finally by his Son all these years. Brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, if we remain hardened until the end, the King will dash us to pieces as he judges us on the day of his visitation. But if we honour Christ and submit to him, we will find rest for our souls and discover that His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. For the Lord is gentle and lowly in heart. It is only when we submit to the the authority of Christ that our submission to human authorities would then fall into the right place. Paul commands us in, in Romans 12 to first present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It was later in Romans 13 that he, he then talks about how to be subject to the governing authorities. Because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So unless we get our submission to God's authority right, we will never get our submission to human authorities right in the correct order. Our submission to the authorities is but an expression of our worship of God. But what about authorities that are oppressive or illegitimate, right? So it's been over a month since the military coup in uh, Myanmar. And Wednesday, this past Wednesday was a singular, bloodiest day with 38 people killed in protests against the military, which had overthrown the democratically elected government on February the 1st. And then last January, Pastor Wang Yi of the Early Rain Covenant Church in China was sentenced to nine years' imprisonment for preaching the gospel. We may have forgotten about him. Our Christian brothers and sisters all over the world face persecution and prosecution from authorities for living out their faith. We may not be exempted here in Singapore very soon. With oppressive authorities and governments that suppress religious freedom, Christians must and can heed Jesus' word in Luke chapter 20, verse 25. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So there could be room for civil disobedience. On the other hand, sometimes the governing authorities may allow certain things that God prohibits, say the legalization of gambling or abortion or sexual immorality. At times, they may even try to make it illegal to speak against that particular issue or counsel someone to seek us, seek us, seek help with, from us. And that is when, that's when Paul offers us wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10, verse 23. He says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things built up. Of course, here Paul is talking about Jewish law. But you see, there are things that are permissible under the civil law as well that may not necessarily be beneficial or loving or pleasing to God. And on these matters, Christians do need to take a stand. The British politician William Wilberforce and the Anglican pastor John Newton, they were well known for speaking out against slavery in the UK. Newton, in particular, was a former slave trader himself before he converted and became an abolitionist and a pastor. Slavery was then prevalent and was legal, right? the government sanctioned it. But this man of God reckoned from Scripture that it was immoral to abuse those who are created in God's image and likeness. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. These are words penned by Newton as he reflected on God's restraining and saving grace upon his life. When it becomes legal one day to become immoral, will you and I take our stand on God's word, recognizing that His is the highest and ultimate authority in our lives? Or will we capitulate and pivot our stance according to the winds and tides of time? There are two uh, recent cases to illustrate this. The State Parliament of Victoria passed the Change or Suppression Conversion Practices Prohibition Bill last month. Very long name. So I quote this article from Australian pastor Murray Campbell. He says, this bill criminalizes prayer and conversation where one person aims to persuade another that pursuing certain sexual activity or change is not the best course of action. So basically, when this law is passed in Victoria, reading scriptures and praying for people whether in small groups or one-to-one from passages like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 will become outlawed and it has become outlawed. Churches and ministries in Victoria will now have to navigate this but I'm heartened to, to learn that many of them have chosen to remain faithful to God rather than to fear people. Christianity Today magazine reported this past Monday that Bethany Christian Services, the largest Christian adoption agency in the U.S., I quote, will now place children with LGBT parents for foster care and adoption across its operations in 32 states. Its President uh, Chris Kulaski claims this. Bethany remains steadfast in its Christian faith will now offer services with the love and compassion of Jesus to the many types of families, including LGBT ones, who exist in our world today. This is a Christian group that has capitulated to public opinion and legislation, rather than standing firm on God's Word. When the time comes for us, brothers and sisters, will we choose to be on the right side of history human opinion, or will we choose to be on the right side of eternity, on God's side? For the young ones, sometimes we may hear the advice of friends, and it sounds very right, but we will learn through life that opinions are but shifting sand. right? Just as in the past it was fashionable to wear uh, skinny ties and then big ties, and then it keeps vacillating. Only God's word is bedrock and good soil for human flourishing. So let us build our lives on Christ, the cornerstone. Second, do we practice true piety? The Lord Jesus has the sternest warnings for those who like to appear pious or religious, but are really hypocrites. In chapter 20, verses 46 to 47, he warns, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honour and peace, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There's nothing the Lord hates more than religious hypocrisy. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, Jesus warns against giving, praying, and fasting, like hypocrites, of practising your righteousness before other people, in order to be seen by them. In Luke's Gospel, he pronounces woes on the Pharisees and teachers of the law in Luke 11, for their overzealous law-keeping and law-imposition on others. He warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, in chapter 12. I think the most recent and hotly debated incident in Christendom today would be the Rabbi Zacharias scandal. I'm sure most of you would have heard about it. This world-renowned Christian apologist and speaker who died in May last year, he was as stood for, I quote, his faithful witness, his commitment to the truth, and his personal integrity. But a recent four-month investigation has uncovered the truth about this man. From the greatest apologist, he is now being caught the greatest fraud. He has systematically and sexually abused multiple vulnerable women. I quote from this article, He used his need for massage and frequent overseas travel to hide his abusive behaviour, luring victim, victims by building trust through spiritual conversations and offering funds straight from his ministry. We must pray for the many women who were abused by Rabbi Zacharias. We must also pray for the many more men and women whose faith, including yours, may have been shaken by this revelation. And more will be shared with us by Pastor Chris in the coming weeks about this. In the past few years, there have also been many prominent, other prominent Christian leaders who had discredited themselves in the Gospel through accusations of marital infidelity, sexual immorality, bullying of staff, and apostasy. But before we point the finger at Rabbi Zacharias or these leaders who have fallen along the way, we must first examine ourselves, lest we miss the lock in our own eyes. And I confess personally that it is easy and is tempting for me to always judge others. But it's always painful and uncomfortable to examine my own life. So how is my spiritual walk personally in my family, in fellowship with God's people, the Church? How is yours? Is there someone in your life who would dare to ask us this tough question? Are we asking each other this question? That, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is why we need to keep coming to church in person, not hide behind the television watching online services. That is why we all need to be part of a small group where people can know us as persons intimately, confront us about sin, pray for us, and stir us to godliness. Perhaps that is why these Christian leaders fell, because they like this due to their busy travel schedules and their prominent profiles. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now let's close with what we began with, the Principality of Hut River. In short, it just doesn't exist anymore, quoting from the same article, when Prince Leonard died in February last year, he left behind an enormous tax bill which forced his son and successor, Prince Graham Casley, to announce last week the Principality would sell its land to pay the debt. Kaisley told CNN he was devastated to dissolve the Micronation. It's very sad watching your father build something up for 50 years and then you have to close it down, says Casley. They are very harsh times economically and health-wise around the world due to COVID. And we are feeling it too. Something that lasts for 50 years closes because of COVID. See, our human efforts to be autonomous and independent from God will all ultimately fall and fail, like this experiment of Hutt River. We will either be forced to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy surrender to God's sovereignty and flee to Christ alone for our salvation, for His righteousness that makes us right with the Father, or we will stubbornly continue to reject His authority and finally stand before His judgment throne to be condemned as His rebels. Like the religious leaders on that day, we will then be silent before our just and holy God. So now, I exhort us to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word that warns us and exhorts us. Help us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to you the things that belong to you. Bring us under the reign of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Convict us of our rebellion and resistance to your reign over us. Help us know and acknowledge Christ alone as our Saviour, Master and Lord. For worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Amen.